You're listening to the McKinsey Podcast, featuring wide-ranging conversations on the issues that matter in business and management. This episode is brought to you by the McKinsey Quarterly. I'm Simon London with McKinsey Publishing. Today, we're diving back into the topic of artificial intelligence, but we're tackling it from a slightly different angle. Instead of talking about only the potential of AI, which, for the record, we continue to think is immense, we're going to be talking about some of its limitations. Our experts today are McKinsey partners Michael Chewy and James Manika, both of whom are based in San Francisco. Asking the questions is my colleague David Schwartz, an editor with the McKinsey Quarterly. So without further ado, over to David. Hello and welcome to the McKinsey Podcast. I'm David Schwartz with McKinsey Publishing. Today, we're going to be journeying to the frontiers of artificial intelligence. We'll touch on what AI's impact could be across multiple industries and functions. We'll also explore limitations that stand in the way, at least for now. I'm joined by two McKinsey leaders who are at the point of the spear, Michael Chewy, based in San Francisco and a partner with the McKinsey Global Institute, and James Manika, the chairman of the McKinsey Global Institute and a senior partner in our San Francisco office. Michael and James, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Great to be here. Michael, where do we see the most potential from AI? The number one thing that we know is just the widespread uh, potential applicability. That said, we're actually quite early in terms of you know, um, the adoption of these technologies, so there's a lot of runway to go. One of the other things that we've discovered is that one way to think about where the potential for AI is is just follow the money. So if you're a company where you know, marketing and sales is what drives the value for your company, that's actually where AI can create the most value. If you're a company where operational excellence matters the most to you, that's where you can create the most value with AI. If you're a bank, then risk is really important to you, and that's another place where um, uh, AI can add value. And again, it, it goes through you know, everything from managing human capital and analyzing people's performance and, and recruitment, et cetera, all through the entire business system. So you know, we see the potential for trillions of dollars of value to be created annually across the entire economy. Well, it certainly sounds like there's a lot of potential and a lot of value yet to be unleashed. James, can you come at it from the other direction? What are the big limitations of AI today, and what do these mean in practical terms for business leaders? When we think about the limitations of AI, we have to keep in mind that this is still a very rapidly evolving set of techniques and technologies. So the science itself and the techniques themselves are still going through uh, development. So when you think about the limitations, I would think of them in several ways. There are limitations that are purely technical. So questions around things like, can we actually explain what the algorithm is doing? Can we interpret why it's making the choices and, and the outcomes and the predictions that it's making? Then you've also got a set of practical limitations. So questions like, is the data actually available? Is it labeled? And we'll get into that in a little bit. But I would also add a third limitation. And these are limitations that you might call limitations in use. And these are what leads you to questions around how transparent are the algorithms? Is there any bias in the data? Is there any bias in the way the data was collected, and so forth? Michael, let's drill down on a first key limitation, data labeling. Can you describe the challenge and some possible ways forward? One of the things that's 
you know, a little bit new about the current generations of AI is we call it machine learning. In this sense, we're not just programming computers, but we're training them, we're teaching them. The way we train them is to actually give them this labeled data. If you're trying to teach a computer to recognize an object within an image, if you're trying to teach a computer to recognize an anomaly within a data stream that says a piece of machinery is about to break down, the way you do that is you have a bunch of labeled data and you say, look, in these types of images, the object is present, in these types of images, the object's not present, in these types of data streams, the machine's about to break, and these types of data streams, the machine's not about to break. We have this idea that you know machines will train themselves. Actually, the, you know, we've generated a huge amount of work for people to do. So take, for example, self-driving cars. These self-driving cars, they have these cameras on them, and you know, one of the things that they're trying to do is collect a bunch of data by driving around. It turns out there are an army of people who are taking the video inputs from this data and then just tracing out where other cars are, where the lane markers are as well. So the funny thing is, you know, we talk about these AI systems automating what people do. In fact, it's generated a whole bunch of manual labor for people to do. So I actually know of this large public museum where they actually get students to literally label pieces of art, to say, that's a cat, that's a dog, that's a tree, that's, that's a shadow, just to label these different, if you like, pieces of art so that then algorithms can then better understand and be able to make predictions and understand them. Older versions of this were literally people identifying cats and dogs. There have been uh, teams, for example, in the UK that have been identifying different breeds of dogs for the purposes of labeling data images uh, for dogs so that when algorithms use that data, they know what it is. The same thing's also happened in a lot of medical applications where people have been labeling different kinds of tumors, for example, so that when machines read those images, they can better then understand what's a tumor, what kind of tumor is it, but it has taken people's actually label those different tumors for that to be then be useful for the machines. And the medical diagnosis is the perfect example. And so this idea of you're going to have a system that looks at x-rays and decides whether or not people have pneumonia, you need the data to tell whether or not this x-ray was associated with somebody who has pneumonia or didn't have pneumonia. And again, you know, collecting that data is an incredibly important thing, but labeling it is, is absolutely necessary. Let's talk about ways to possibly solve it. And I know that there are two techniques in uh, supervised learning, which we're hearing a lot about. One is reinforcement learning, and the other is GANs. Could you speak about those? A number of these techniques are meant to basically create more examples that allow you to um, teach the machine or have it learn. Reinforcement learning has been used to train robots, and so in the sense that you know, if the robot does the behavior that you want it to, you reward the robot for doing it. If it does a behavior you don't, you give it negative reinforcement. Because in that case, what you have is a function that says whether or not you did something good or bad. Rather than having a huge set of labeled data, you just have a function that says, uh, you did good, uh, you did the wrong thing. And so that's one way to get around label data is, is by having a function that tells you whether or not you did the right thing. GANs, uh, which stands for Generative Adversarial Networks, you basically have two networks, one that's trying to generate the right thing, uh, the other one is trying to discriminate whether or not you're generating the right thing. Again, it's another way to get around one potential limitation of having huge amounts of label data in the sense you have two systems which are competing against each other in an adversarial way. It's been used for doing all kinds of things the generative, the G part of it, uh, is what's actually remarkable. You can generate 
art in the style of another artist. You can generate architecture in the style of other things that you've observed. You can generate you know, designs uh, that, that look like other things that you might have observed before. The one thing I would add about GANs is that in, in many respects they're actually a form of semi-supervised learning techniques in the sense that they typically start with some initial labeling but then kind of in a generative way kind of build on it in this kind of adversarial kind of contest way. There's also a whole host of other techniques that, are, uh, that people are experimenting with. One of the things, for example, is researchers at Microsoft Research Labs, for example, have been working on in-stream labeling, where you know, you'll actually label the data through use. So you're trying to interpret based on how the, the data is being used, what it actually means. So this idea of in-stream labeling has actually been around for quite a while, but in recent years has actually started to demonstrate some quite remarkable uh, results. So this problem of labeling is one we're going to be with for quite a while. What about limitations when there is not enough data? So one of the things that uh, you know we've heard from Andrew Ng, who's a, one of the leaders in machine learning and AI, is that companies and organizations that are taking AI seriously are playing these multi-year games to acquire the data that they need. In the physical world, it's oftentimes whether you're doing self-driving cars or drones, etc. It takes time to go out and you know, drive a whole bunch of streets or fly a whole bunch of things. In order to try to improve the speed at which you can learn some of those things, one of the things you can do is simulate environments by creating these virtual environments you know, basically within the data center, basically within a computer. You can run a whole bunch more trials, learn a whole bunch more things uh, through simulation so that in fact when you actually end up in the physical world, you've already you know, come to the physical world with your AI already having learned a bunch of things in simulation. A good example of that is if you look at some of the demonstrations, for example, that the uh, team at DeepMind has actually done, where they've done a lot of uh, simulated training for robotic arms, for example, where much of the manipulation techniques that these robotic arms have been able to develop and learn from have actually been done in simulation way before the thing, the robot arm has actually been even applied to the real world. So when then it shows up in the real world, it comes with this pre-learned, uh, uh, if you like, uh, data sets that have come from out of simulation as a way to get around the uh, limitations of data. It sounds like we may be considering a deeper issue, what machine intelligence actually means. How can we move from a process of rote inputs, set outputs, to something more along the lines of the ways that humans learn? That's in some ways the holy grail question, which is how do you build kind of generalizable systems that can learn anything? I mean, humans are remarkable in the sense that, you know, we can take things we've learned over here and apply them to a totally different problem that we, we may be seeing for the first time. And so this has led to, you know, one big area of research that's typically referred to as transfer learning. The idea that how do you take models or learnings or insights from one arena and apply them to another. And you know, while we're making progress in reinforcement, in, in transfer learning, it's actually one of the harder problems to, to solve, actually. And there you're finding sort of new techniques, this idea of simulated learning, where you generate data sets in simulation is one way to do that. AlphaZero, which is a more kind of interesting version, if you like, of AlphaGo, has learned to play three different games, basically, but having just a generalized structure of games, not a specific structure of game, but a more generalized structure of games. So through that, it's been able to learn chess and Go and so forth by having a generalized structure. But even that is limited in the sense that it's still limited to games that take a certain form, 
the AI field we're relearning, which neurologists have known for a long time, is that, you know, as people, we don't come as tabula rasa. We, we actually have a number of, you know, structures in our brain which are optimized for certain things, whether it's understanding language or behavior, physical behavior, etc. People like Jeff Hinton who are using capsules and other types of concepts, this idea of, you know, actually embedding some learning in the structure of the systems that we're uh, using is something that we've seen as well. And so you sort of wonder whether or not transfer learning, um, part of it, you know, part of the solution to that is actually understanding that, you know, we don't start from nothing, right? We actually start from systems that have some configuration already, and that helps us be able to take certain learnings from one place to another because actually we're sort of set up to do that. Yeah, and in fact, Steve Rosenack has actually come, so this has led to all kinds of questions about how do you think about what's, what's the right Turing test or the, the kind of test you can come up with for generalized learning. And so one version that he has is the so-called coffee test, which is, you know, the day we, we can actually get a, a system that can walk into an unknown American household and make a cup of coffee, that's actually pretty remarkable because that requires being able to interpret a totally unknown environment, being able to discover things in a totally un unknown place, and be able to make something with unknown equipment in a particular household there's a lot of general problems that need to be solved along the way of actually making a cup of coffee in an unknown household, which may sound trivial compared to solving very narrow, highly technical, specific problems which we think of as remarkable. So I think the more we can then look to these solving what are generalized, often quite frankly garden variety, real world problems, those might actually be the true tests of whether we have generalized systems or not. And it is important, by the way, as we think about all the exciting stuff that's going on in AI and machine learning, is that the vast majority of whether it's the techniques or the even the applications, they're mostly solving very specific things. They're solving natural language processing, they're solving image recognition, they're doing very, very specific things. And there's a huge flourishing of that. Whereas the work going towards solving these more generalized problems while it's making progress, it's proceeding much, much more slowly. So we shouldn't confuse the progress we're making on these more narrow, specific problem sets to mean, therefore, we've created a generalized uh, system. There's another limitation which we should probably discuss, David, which is, and it's actually an important one for lots of reasons. This is the question of explainability. Because one of the things that uh, essentially neural networks by their structure are such that it's actually very hard to pinpoint why a particular outcome is what it is and where exactly in the structure of it led to a particular outcome. Right. I'm, I'm hearing that we're, we're dealing with very complicated problems, very, very complex issues, and how would someone outside in ever understand what may appear to be, may in fact be, almost a black box? Yeah, and, the, and this is the question of explainability, which is how do we even know that? If you think about where we start applying these systems to, in the financial world, for example, to lending. And if we deny you for a mortgage application, you may want to know why. What is the data point or feature set that led to that decision? You might want to know it for, if you apply these systems, say, to the criminal justice system. So if somebody's been let off on bail and somebody else wasn't, you may want to understand why is it that we came to that conclusion. It may also be an important question for purely research purposes where you're trying to self-discover uh, particular behaviors. And so you're trying to understand what particular part of the data leads to a particular set of behaviors. So this is a very hard problem structurally. The good news, though, is that 
we're starting to make progress on some of these things. One of the ways in which we're making progress are what are so-called kind of GAMs. Uh, these are kind of more generalized additive models where what you're doing there is as opposed to taking massive amounts of models at the same time, you almost take one feature model set at a time, so to speak, and you, you build on it. So you know, for example, when you, when you apply the neural network, you're exploring one particular feature, and then you layer on another feature so that you can see how the results are changing based on this kind of layering, if you like, of different uh, feature models. So you can see when the results shift, which model feature set seem to have made the biggest difference. So this is a way to start to get some insight into what is exactly driving kind of the, the behaviors and outcomes uh, you're getting. One of the other big drivers for explainability uh, is regulation and, and regulators, right? So, you know, again, if, if, if a car decides to make a left turn versus a right turn and there's some liability associated with that, the legal system will want to ask the question, why did the car make the left turn or the right turn? And in, in the, the European Union, there's a general data protection uh, regulation which will require uh, explainability for certain types of decisions that these machines might make. And, you know, the machines are completely deterministic. You could say, here are a million weights associated with our simulated neurons. Here's why. But that's actually not engaging to a human being. Another technique uh, is acronym LIME, which is locally interpretable model agnostic explanations. Uh, the idea there is to, uh, you know, from the outside in, you know, rather than look at, you know, the structure of the, of the model, just be able to, you know, perturb certain parts of the model on the inputs and see whether or not that makes a difference on the outputs. So again, if you're taking a look at an image and trying to recognize whether an object is a pickup truck or an ordinary sedan, you might say, you know, if I change the windscreen on the inputs, does that cause me to, to have a different output? On the other hand, if I change the, the back end of, of the vehicle, um, it looks like that makes a difference. And so that says, Ah, then I know from what this model is paying attention to, you know, as it's determining, you know, whether or not it's a, a sedan or a pickup truck, is the, the back part of the vehicle. And so it's basically doing experiments on the model in order to figure out what makes a difference. That's some of the techniques that people are trying to use in order to explain how these systems work. At some level, I'm hearing from the questions, but I'm also hearing from what the rejoinder might be, there's a very human element. The question would be, why is the answer such and such, and the, and the answer could be it's the algorithm. But somebody built that algorithm, or somebody, or a team of somebody's, and machines built that algorithm. And that brings us to a limitation that is not quite like the others, bias, human predilections. Could you speak a little bit more about what we're up against, James? The question of bias is a very important one, and I'd actually put it into two parts. Clearly, these algorithms in some ways are a big improvement on human biases. And in, this is the positive side of the bias conversation. We know that, for example, sometimes when humans are interpreting data on CVs, for example, they might gravitate to one set of attributes and ignore some other attributes because of whatever predilections that they bring to that. So there's a big part of this in which the application of these algorithms is, is in fact a significant improvement compared to human biases. So in that sense, this is a good thing. So, you know, uh, so we want, we, we want those kinds of benefits. But I think it's worth having the second part of the conversation, which is even when we are applying these algorithms, we do know that they are creatures of the data and the inputs you put in. And so if those inputs you put in are having some inherent biases themselves, you may actually be introducing different kinds of biases at much larger scale. The work of people like Julia Angwin and others 
have actually shown, for example, that if the data collected already is already biased, if you take policing as an example, we know that there are some communities that are more heavily policed. Uh, there's a large, much larger police presence. So therefore, the data we've got and that's collected about those environments is much, much, much higher. And so therefore, if we then start to compare, say, two neighborhoods, one where it's oversampled, if you like, meaning there's lots and lots of data available for it because there's a larger police presence, versus another one where there isn't much policing, so therefore there isn't much data available, we may actually draw the wrong conclusions about the heavily policed observed environment, just simply because there's more data available for it versus the other one. The biases can go another way, for example, in the case of lending, where the implications might go the other way, where, you know, for populations or segments that are where we have lots and lots of financial data about them, we may actually make good decisions because the data is largely available versus another environment, for example, where we're talking about a segment of the population where we don't, have, we don't know much about them, and the little bit that we know sends the decision off in one way. And so that's another example where the undersampling creates a bias. So the point about this second part is that I think it becomes very, very important to make sure that we think through and kind of start to think about what might be the inherent biases in the data in any direction that might be in the data set itself, either in the actual way it's constructed, or even the way it's collected, or the degree of sampling of the data and the granularity of it. Can we de-bias that in some fundamental way? So this is why the question of bias, and I think for leaders, it's particularly important because it runs the risk of opening companies up to all kinds of potential litigation, social concern, particularly when you get to using these algorithms in ways that have social implications. Again, lending is a good example. Criminal justice is another example. Provision of health care is another example. These become very, very important arenas to think about these questions of bias. Some of the difficult cases where you know, there's bias in the data, at least in the first instance, isn't around necessarily as a primary factor people's inherent biases about either you know, choosing you know, one or, or the other. It is in many cases these ideas about sampling, sampling bias, data collection bias, et cetera, which again is not about the necessarily un, you know, un, unconscious human bias, but an artifact of uh, you know, where the data came from. You know, there's a very famous case, less AI related, where an American city used a, an, an app in the early days of smartphones to determine where potholes were based on the accelerometer you know, shaking when, when you drove over a pothole. And then strangely, it discovered that, uh, you know, if you looked at the data, it seemed that there were more potholes in affluent parts of the city. And that has nothing to do with the fact that there were actually more potholes in that part of the city, but you had more signals from that part of the city because more affluent people had more smartphones at the time. That's one of those cases where it wasn't any intention to try to, you know, not pay attention to certain parts of the city, but the, you know, understanding the provenance of data, understanding what's being sampled is incredibly important. Um, you know, we, there's another uh, researcher who has a famous TED Talk, uh, Joy Balamwini, at the, at the MIT Media Lab. She does a lot of work on facial recognition, and she's a black woman, and she says, look, a lot of the other um, you know, researchers are more male and pale than I am, and as a result, the accuracy for certain populations in their facial recognition is far higher than it is for me. Uh, and so again, it, it's not necessarily because people are trying 
uh, to exclude populations, although sometimes that happens. It really has to do with understanding the representativeness of the sample that you're using in order to train your systems. So as a business leader, you need to understand if you're going to train machine learning systems, how representative you know are the are the training sets that you're, that you're using? Yeah, and, and it actually creates an interesting tension. Uh, that's why I described kind of the part one, the part two, because on the first instance, when you look at the part one problem, which is the hu inherent human biases in normal day-to-day -day hiring and whatever decisions, you get very excited about using artificial intelligence techniques. You say, "Wow, for the first time, we have a way to get past." these human biases in everyday decisions. But at the same time, we should be thoughtful about where that takes us to when you get to these part two kind of problems where you now are using large data sets that are in these inherent biases. I think people forget that one of the things in the AI machine uh, deep learning world is that many researchers are using largely the same data sets that are shared, that are public quite often. So unless you happen to be a company that has these large proprietary data sets, people are using this you know, famous you know, sci-fi data set, which is often used for object recognition. It's publicly available. Most people benchmark their performance on image recognition based on these publicly available data sets. So if everybody's using common data sets that may have these inherent biases in them, we're kind of replicating at large scale biases. So I think this tension between part one and part two and this bias question is a very important one to think through. But I think the good news though is that I think in the last couple of years there's been actually a growing recognition of the issues we just described. And I think there's now many places that are putting real research effort into these questions about how do you think about bias. What are best practices uh, for AI given what we've discussed today about the wide range of applications the wide range of limitations and the wide range of challenges before us? Well, a, a couple of things. I mean, it is early, so to talk about best practices, it might be a little bit preliminary. You know, I'll steal a, a phrase that I once heard from Gary Hamill. We might be talking about next practices in a certain sense, but that said, a, a, a few things that we'd observe from, you know, leaders who are really pioneers and vanguards. First thing is, you know, one we've described as get calibrated, but it's really just start to understand the technology, what's possible, some of the things that we've talked about today. I think business leaders you know, over the past few years have had to understand technology more. This is really on the tip of the spear, on the, on the cutting edge. So really trying to understand what's possible in the technology. And then try to understand what that, the potential implications are across your entire business. As we said, these technologies are widely applicable. And so understand where in your business you know, you're der deriving value and how these technologies can help you derive value, whether it's marketing sales, whether it's supply chain, whether it's manufacturing, you know, whether it's in human capital or risk. And then you know, don't be afraid to you know, be bold or at least experiment, right? This is a, a, a type of technology where it's a learning curve. And the earlier you start to learn, the faster you'll go up the curve, the, the quicker you'll learn, you know, where you can add value, you know, where you can find data, how you can have a data strategy in order to, to unlock the data you need to, to do machine learning. Getting started early, there's really no substitute for that. The only other thing I'd add is actually something you've been working a lot on, Michael. One of the things that leaders are going to have to understand, or at least to make sure that the teams understand, is this question of where do these techniques actually, which techniques map to which kinds of problems, which leads to what kind of value? We know that the vast majority of techniques, for example, in the end are largely classifiers. And so knowing that is helpful, and then knowing, you know, are the kind of problem sets in your business system 
ones that look like classification problems, and if so, you have an enormous opportunity, actually. And this leads to where you then think about where economic value is and you have the data available. There's a much more granular understanding that leaders are going to have to have, unfortunately. And the good thing is, so the reason why this matters, back to Michael's next practice point, is that we're already seeing, if you like, a differentiation between those leaders and companies who, who are you know, at the frontier of understanding this and applying these techniques versus others who are quite frankly dabbling or at least kind of paying lip service. So it's actually worth occasionally as a leader, I would think, visiting or spending time with researchers at the frontier, or at least talking to them, just to understand what's going on and what's not possible. Because this field is moving so quickly, things that may have, seen, may have been seen as limitations two years ago may not be anymore. And if you're still relying on a conversation you had with an AI scientist two years ago, you may be behind already. James and Michael, absolutely fascinating. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the McKinsey Podcast. To learn more about McKinsey, our people and our latest thinking, visit us at mckinsey.com or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook.